My name is George Bartley, and welcome to Celebrate Poe. This is episode number 108, A Teenager in Richmond. You might remember that I used the bells in a previous episode on tropes as a great example of alliteration, the repetition of consonants. Then the next episode, I also used the bells as an excellent example of onomatopoeia, the use of words that sound like the objects they are describing. That's not because I'm running out of material, far from it, uh, but because many of Edgar Allan Poe's works are masterpieces on so many levels and call out for examination from quite a few perspectives. But I'm not going to read The Bells again, at least for this episode. Well, it's the ghost of Mr. Poe. So glad that uh, you're here today. I want to talk about your youth in Richmond. Thank you, Mr. Botley. That is a period that is not discussed a great deal, but has to be one of the most enjoyable as well as painful periods of my life. Yes, before we talk about the continuation of your education in Richmond, could you briefly bring us up to date about your time abroad? Certainly. First, John Allen, his wife, Frances Keeling Valentine Allen, his wife's sister, Anne Moore Valentine, and myself visited John Allen's family and friends in Scotland. Then John Allen, accompanied by his family, moved to London, England. In 1815, John Allen founded a branch of the Richmond Firm in London in 1815. I was first tutored by the Mrs. Duberg in London and later attended the Manor House School of the Reverend John Bransby at Stoke Newington. Unfortunately, John Allen's business was not as successful as he had hoped, and he found it necessary to return to Richmond with his family. Now, when was this? We returned to Richmond in 1820. Ah, yes, I I should have known that. Ah, yes, and, and while I believe that Frances Allen was certainly not eager to undertake another sea voyage, she had some most interesting comments regarding her feelings regarding the sea versus seeing her old friends again. Yes, uh, she certainly did express such sentiments. In fact, John Allen wrote his business partner, Charles Ellis, that Frances has the greatest aversion to the sea and nothing but dire necessity and the prospect of a reunion with her old and dear friends could induce her to attempt it. And yes, I believe that John Allen later also wrote a letter to Charles Ellis that somewhat uncharacteristically, at least for John Allen, has him admitting and reflecting on his mistakes. John Allen wrote, The truth is, Charles, that we have erred through pride and ambition. I hope we shall yet have an opportunity to conduct our business like sensible and reflecting men. 
I shall leave the house and furniture standing, live it out for twelve or eighteen months ready, should we be in a condition to prosecute our business. If impossible, it is easy getting rid of the furniture, home and all. Rather than the old way, I would turn farmer or planter. This is a private letter. We must support and encourage each other. Frances is getting better. She has to learn what a pleasing sensation is experienced on returning home, even in hot weather. Well, uh, could you tell us briefly about your return home? One must admit that there's not a great deal to relate. The ship was called the Martha, set sail June the 16th, and arrived in the United States during the night after a voyage of 36 days. And the Martha was considered a quick sailing ship. Oh, yes, we boarded a steamboat on 29 July 1820, leaving Norfolk for Richmond. By the way, do you know how long such a journey required? I know today that a journey from Norfolk to Richmond would require 90 minutes to two hours, depending on the traffic. Uh, Mr. Bartley, in 1820, the journey normally required three to four days. And uh, where did you live when you returned to Richmond? Ah, yes. We, we took up residence in the house of Charles Ellis. And during that period, Mr. Ellis later wrote his wife, Margaret, who was visiting in Concord, Virginia, that, quote, Our friends, Mr. and Mrs. Allen, Nancy, uh, Miss Nancy and Edgar, are very well. And you would be surprised to see what health and color Mrs. A. has. They are quite well satisfied at our house, and I make out pretty well, although not as well as you would do. They are a little Englishized, but it will soon wear off. They talk of going to Stanton. Mr. Poe, that's an interesting remark. Stanton is certainly urban today, but in the early 1800s, it probably was viewed as a wilderness area in comparison. Yes, uh, in that letter, Mr. Ellis pointed out that John Allen brought with him from England a telescope. And I was to later find that same telescope playing a major role regarding my observation of the cosmos. And I believe it was around September of 1820 that you entered the school of Joseph H. Clark, an establishment of learning that was located over a store at Broad and Fifth. Yes, and Mr. Clark was later to write about me. Edgar read, read Ovid, Caesar, Virgil, Cicero, and Horace in Latin, and Xenophon and Homer in Greek. So you certainly had the uh, basis of a classical education. Oh, yes, and, and along with my rhetorical studies at Stoke Newington, I believe that the fact that I did engage in stringent rhetorical studies was quite obvious. Mr. Clark also said about me, he had no love for mathematics. While the other boys wrote more mechanical verses, 
Mr. Poe wrote genuine poetry. The boy was a born poet. As a scholar, he was ambitious to excel, and although not conspicuously studious, he always acquitted himself well in his classes. He was remarkable for self-respect without haughtiness. In his demeanor towards his playmates, he was strictly just and correct, which made him a general favorite. His natural and predominant passion seemed to me to be an enthusiastic ardor in everything he undertook. Even in those early years, Edgar Poe displayed the germs of that wonderfully rich and splendid imagination which has placed him in the front rank of the purely imaginative poets of the world. His schoolboy verses were written con amore, and not as mere tasks. When he was ten years old, Mr. Allen came to me one day with a manuscript volume of verses which he said Edgar had written and which the little fellow wanted to have published. He asked my advice upon the subject. I told him that Edgar was of a very excitable temperament, that he possessed a great deal of self-esteem, and that it would be very injurious to the boy to allow him to be flattered and talked about as the author of a printed book at his age. The verses, I remember, consisted chiefly of pieces addressed to the different little girls in Richmond. By the way, were the Allens still living with Charles Ellis, or had they moved to Moldavia? No, we were not living in Moldavia at that point. Uh, That certainly did not occur until the summer of 1825. It happens that the Allens did take a house at the corner of 14th Street and Tobacco Alley. Mr. Poe, I know that we don't have a great deal of documentation about how you spent Christmas, but we do know that the Allens often spent Christmas with the Charles Ellis family. Yes, uh, Thomas H. Ellis, the son of Charles and Margaret Ellis, later wrote about me. No boy ever had a greater influence over me than he had. He was indeed a leader among boys, but my admiration for him scarcely knew bounds. The consequence was he led me to do many things for which I was punished. The only whipping I ever knew Mr. Allen to give him was for carrying me out into the fields and woods beyond Belvedere one Saturday and keeping me there all day and until after dark. This was without anybody at home knowing where we were and for shooting a lot of domestic fowls belonging to the propriety proprietor of Belvedere, who I think was, at the time, Judge Bushrod Washington. He taught me to shoot, to swim, and to skate, to play bandy, and, 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 I, and I ought to mention that he, he once saved me from drowning, for having thrown me into the falls headlong that I might strike out for myself. He presently found it necessary to come to my help, or it would have been too late. Mr. and Mrs. Allen, having no child of their own, lavished upon him their whole affection. He was sent to the best schools. He was taught every accomplishment that a boy could acquire. 
he was trained to all the habits of the most polished society. There was not a brighter, more beautiful and graceful, or more attractive boy in the city than Edgar Allan Poe. Talent for declamation was one of his gifts. I well remember a public exhibition at the close of a course of instruction and elocution which he had attended, and my delight when he bore off the prize from others who were regarded as among the most promising of the Richmond boys. Mr. Poe, I think this is a very interesting period of your life, largely because this was a period when your ideas were first being formulated. Yes, Mr. Bartley, I tried to be a good student and athlete at Mr. Joseph H. Clark's school. A schoolmate and friend of mine by the name of John T.L. Preston later recalled, although I was several years his junior, we sat together on the same farm for a year or more at a classical school in Richmond, Virginia. Our master was Joseph Clark of Trinity College, Dublin, a hot-tempered, pedantic bachelor Irishman, but a Latinist of the first order. According to the style of scholarship of that date, he unquestionably was. I have often heard my mother amuse herself by repeating his pompous assurance that in his school, her boys should be taught only the pure Latinity of the Augustan age. Edgar Poe might have been at this time 15 or 16, he being one of the oldest boys in the school and I one of the youngest. His power and accomplishments captivated me, and something in me or in him made him take a fancy to me. In the simple school athletics of those days, when a gymnasium had not been heard of, he was an acknowledged leader. He was a swift runner, a wonderful leaper, and what was more, rare a boxer, with some slight training. For swimming he was noted, being in many of his athletic proclivities surprisingly like Byron in his youth. We selected Poe as our champion in a foot race. The race came off one bright May morning at sunrise on the Capitol Square. In our Latin exercises in the school, Poe was among the first. And yes, he, he was very fond of the odes of Horace and repeated them so often in my hearing that I learned by sound the words of many before I truly understood their meaning. I remember that Poe was also a very fine French scholar, yet with all his superiorities, he was not the master spirit nor even the favorite of the school. Poe, as I recall my impressions now, was self-willed, capricious, inclined to be imperious, and, though of generous impulses, not steadily kind or even amiable. Of Edgar Poe, it was known that his parents were players and that he was dependent upon the bounty that is bestowed upon an adopted son. All this had the effect of making the boys decline his leadership. Not a little of Poe's time in school and out of it was occupied with writing verses. 
My boyish admiration was so great for my schoolfellow's genius that I requested requested him to give me permission to carry his portfolio home for the inspection of my mother. Uh, if you'll excuse me here, Mr. Poe, it sounds like you might be setting yourself up for some literary criticism from another individual. Be that as it may, let, let, let me continue. If her enthusiasm was less than mine, her judgment did not hesitate to praise the verses very highly, and her criticism might well gratify the boyish poet, for she was a lady who, to a natural love for literature, inherited from her father, Edmund Randolph, had added the most thorough and careful culture obtained by the most extensive reading of the English classics, the, the established mode of female education in those days. Here, then, you have the first critic to whom were submitted the verses of our world-famed poet. Her warm appreciation of the boy's genius in work was proof of her own critical taste. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe that the young Mr. Poe enrolled then at Burke's School in Richmond after studying with Mr. Joseph Clark. Yes, this is true, and, and while at the school, uh, a student by the name of Mr. Sheldon claimed that I was a liar or a rascal, I will never forget those admonitions. I, I naturally became involved in a fight with Mr. Sheldon, who was actually much heavier than me. He pommeled me vigorously for quite some time. To an observer, it would appear that I was submitting with very little resistance. Then, to the surprise of the spectators, I administered a sound whipping. When my fellow students asked why I permitted Selden to pommel me to pommel my head so long, I replied that I was waiting my adversary to get out of breath before showing him a few things in the art of fighting. Mr. Poe, I think your perceptions regarding your youth are fascinating. Yes, I would like to think that during my earthly life I was a quiet, peaceful youngster for the most part. I seldom got into a difficulty uh, with my schoolmates. I was as plucky as any boy at school, however, and never admitted myself to be imposed upon. When it came to a question of looking after my individual rights, however, I realized the importance of asserting myself. One might say uh, that I was not extremely popular, though, with my schoolmates. Why would you say that? I was basically too retiring in my disposition and singularly unsociable in manner. Certainly you had some friends... The only two boys I was intimate with were Monroe Stannard, who afterwards became Judge Stannard, and Robert G. Cable. Would that Monroe Stannard be the same as Robert Stannard? Yes, one, one and the same. Great. I want to talk about Robert Stannard in a future episode. Mr. Bartley, why, why is that? Oh, Robert Stannard is my research find. Oh, you are far from the first to do research regarding the Stannards. I know, but, but humor me. 
Now, to return to your earlier questions, I I was quite fond of both of them, and we were continually in each other's company. Did you ever spend the night or eat dinner with your friends? You know, activities that uh, you kind of associate with best friends. No, now now some might consider that a strange occurrence. It is true that other boys would frequently spend the night or take dinner with each other at their homes, but I was seldom known to enter into such social activities. After I left the playgrounds at school, well, that was the end of my sociability until the next day. Did you have any social activities during this period? Ah, yes. Mr. Beverly Anderson, William F. Ritchie, and myself formed a small thespian society. We had our headquarters in the old wooden building that stood on the northeast corner of 6th and Marshall Streets. Well, what did Mr. Allen think about you being a member of an acting society? My participation in the thespian group was definitely contrary to the wishes of Mr. Allen. One might say that you had acting in your blood. I quite agree. I feel that I definitely had talent in such a direction. Well, what size audiences did you have? Oh, oh, the audiences ranged from 40 to 50. Rather considerable for such a small troupe. We would charge a small admission fee and divide the profits among the actors. The money was basically used as pin money. Now, getting back to your school, I know that in earlier episodes of Celebrate Poe, I have surmised that punishments were liberally distributed at boarding schools in England. Would you say that was true at the schools you attended in Virginia? Let me respond to your observation in this manner. It was said that I never got a whipping at school in Richmond. I do remember that the other boys would frequently come in for a flogging. My instructor believed in the moral power of the birch. He accepted the theory, spare the rod and spoil the child, as as a matter of course. And the consequence was that whippings were so frequent that they created no sensation among the scholars who witnessed them. Well, it looks like we're coming to a close for this episode, but before we do, would you care to relate the story about the specific Christmas that you spent with the Ellis family when you played with the uh, somewhat lifelike snake? Yes, most definitely. Now, see, the Ellis family was visiting the Allen family during Christmas. Among the toys provided for our entertainment was a snake a long, slime, shiny thing made in sections fastened to each other by wires, and by taking hold of the tail and holding it out from my body, I could make it wriggle and dart about in the most lifelike manner. I took this hideous imitation of a serpent in my hand and kept poking it at Jane Ellis until it almost ran her crazy. Thank you, Mr. Poe. Now, future episodes of Celebrate Poe uh, will deal with such areas as Edgar Poe's swimming skills. 
Did you know that Poe is said to have swum at least five, possibly six miles across the James River against the tide? I originally had about five minutes regarding Poe's long-distance swim in the James River, but once I did some research, I did. Uh, I realized that it might be a good idea to do a full episode about the dynamics of long-distance swimming. And a rather creative lady in her 60s who recently swam over 100 miles in very rough water and kind of put all this together to uh, put that swim into perspective. The next episode also delves into the connection between endurance athletics and artistic accomplishments. And uh, March should also see a podcast about General Lafayette's visit to the United States. One of Lafayette's stops was Richmond, and here he was met at the Old Stone House, currently the oldest house in Richmond. Uh, Poe was a member of the Junior Rifleman. He was actually the leader, and... Uh, The encounter between Poe and Lafayette has to be one of the proudest moments of the young writer's life. The old stone house is now the site of the Edgar Allan Poe Museum, which I'm sure I have mentioned. And I remember just one more comment. When I was working at the Poe Museum, it seemed that half the visitors would ask, did Poe live here? No, there are no buildings existing in Richmond. Uh, still standing, in which Poe lived. But the Poe Museum is the largest collection of Poe memorabilia in the world. And I know that I'll be talking a great deal more about its fascinating collection in future episodes. Sources for this episode include The Complete Works of Edgar Allan Poe by Edgar Allan Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, The Man by Mary E. Phillips, Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by author Hobson Quinn, Life of Edgar A. Poe by Eugene L. Didier, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight Thomas and David K. Jackson, and Poe and Place by Philip Edward Phillips, New Glimpses of Poe by James A. Harrison, Edgar Allan Poe and the Night. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.